I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, a previously unpublished conversation with journalist Dave Lindorf, who has been investigating the fascinating story of Ted Hall, a teenaged science prodigy who eventually went on to become an atomic spy, sharing nuclear secrets with the Soviet Union. It's an intriguing case, from Ted's motivations for becoming an atomic spy to the way in which his brother, Edward Hall, attempted to protect him from J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. This is an episode you're not going to want to miss, so with all that in mind, let's get right to it with journalist Dave Lindorf, whose work you can find at... This can't be happening.net. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've actually wanted to have on this show for some time. I've been reading his work uh, for many years uh, since at least at least college, if not even I, I was probably reading his work in high school. <laughs> uh, but Dave Lindorf investigative reporter, writes for Counterpunch, The Nation, and uh, many, many other websites. How are you doing today? Good, good. I think my spelling's gotten worse over all those years. <laughs> so I wanted to have you on the show to discuss this article you have in the Nation magazine entitled, One Brother Gave the Soviets the A-Bomb, the Other Got a Medal. And 
this is a rather interesting story. It's going to be getting the documentary treatment. Uh, but before we get into that, why don't you give my listeners a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into looking at uh, this Cold War history and the story of atomic spies? Yeah, it's a little bit odd off of my usual uh, uh, topics, uh, although war and peace is a big deal for me, and and you know nuclear destruction is a big thing, but but Cold War history not so much. Um, I uh, I don't know. Every few years, I'm I'm inspired to write a piece about uh, commemorating the two bombs dropped on Japan three days apart in August of, of 1945. Um, I was going to say real quick, I, I liked that in your article for The Nation, you interviewed uh, Peter Kuznick, who has actually been on my show and has done really great work on uh, the dropping of the two A-bombs on Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima. Yeah, he was really helpful uh, for, you know, his insights on this. Um so anyway, I wrote this uh, this commemoration in this particular year that I did it uh, in 2018. I um, I thought I, I was curious about who the spies were that uh, gave the Russians the bomb because I was thinking, boy, you know, I hadn't really thought about the fact that you know the U.S. had a monopoly from that date until the Russians got the bomb. And uh, and I really didn't know what happened at that point, uh, you know, with the U.S. monopoly, other than that they, you know, clearly wanted to scare the Russians with the bomb when they dropped it on Japan. So I, I was curious how the Russians got the details to the bomb, as I did. I did hear that uh, the uh, the bomb they exploded in. Uh, August 29th, 1949, was almost a carbon copy of the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. So when I looked into it a little, just Googled, you know, I, I got this list of, of the atomic spies who were working in both England and in uh, Los Alamos, mostly. I guess they had some spy at Hanford and... and uh, um, was the other big place in Tennessee? Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's drawing a blank. At any rate, uh, there were a number of spies, and the list of them it was like this rogues gallery of pictures in Google, you know. And sort of the the last one is this pimply faced little guy who looked like a high school kid, and and I was struck by how young he looked. So I clicked on his his picture and I read that Ted Hall, Theodore Hall, was 18 when he was working as a physicist at Los Alamos. So that got interesting. And so I looked him up a little more and I learned that uh, he was hired out of Harvard as a junior physics major on the recommendation of John Van Fleck, who was like the fa super famous astrophysicist. And um, he was hired in the middle of his junior year um, and went to work in January of 1944. And by October, he had uh, volunteered to spy for the Soviet Union 
And uh, through the end of the war in 45, he uh, provided information mostly about the plutonium bombs explosive, uh, you know, Im implosion system to make it work and, uh, and probably gave them five years uh, lead on getting their bomb. So that seemed fascinating to me. And, and so I, and, and in the course of reading that, of course, I read about Klaus Fuchs, who I knew a little about. Everybody knows his name. He was a big spy. And he also gave them a lot of, of the details of the uh, plutonium bomb and a lot of other, you know, the, the uranium bomb and everything else. Um, but uh, um, the two of them giving the bomb to the, to the Russians convinced the scientists that this wacky system of an implosion system uh, would was the way to go and that uh, they wouldn't probably have believed it coming from Fuchs. Fuchs was a, a German communist who fled the Gestapo one step ahead of them, went to England in the, in the early 30s and then uh, you know, started working on research there and was seen as brilliant and got hired even as a communist in the Manhattan Project program. So that was weird. And, and you must see how the the Russians or the Soviets would have looked at that. They would have said, oh, can we believe this guy? I mean, how could he possibly have been hired as a known communist as spy, and who's now spying for us? Um, is he a double agent? Right. And his the thing is, he was telling them about the plutonium bomb seemed totally crazy um, and super complicated and hard to do. And so when Ted's came in as knowing he had no connection because they he was their spy, too, and, and they knew that those guys didn't know each other and were totally separate silos. And so that made them believe it. And. Uh, they were able to, uh, Kurchatan was able to go to uh, to uh, Stalin and say, this is the real thing. We need to build the plutonium bomb. We have the plans now. We can do it. Um, and Stalin, who'd been very skeptical about the bomb project, and he was right in the middle of fighting the Germans, and this is, you know, the late 40s, um, didn't want to spend a lot of money on a speculative project. But now it looked like, you know, it really would work. And so he said, OK, you know, blank check, whatever you need, we'll, we'll go with the plutonium bomb. So that, that solved their problem and they, and they built it. But um, so I wrote a piece saying that um, for my commemorative piece that Ted Hall and uh, Klaus Fuchs should get posthumous Nobel Peace Prizes. And I was expecting, you know, some hate mail and I just did it because, you know, I wanted to be provocative and, and, and I did think that they probably saved the world from the U.S. having a monopoly on the bomb. If you could explain that for younger listeners, what were they preventing by giving this information to the Soviets? Okay, well, look, if, if the U.S. had the atomic bomb, that, here, here's something you need to know, which which I learned in the course of you know a little research. That when the U.S. made the the first two atomic bombs, the uranium bomb and the uh, and the plutonium bomb, because they actually made two bombs and used the the more reliable one, the uranium bomb, 
uh, simpler operation. They used that on Hiroshima for the first bomb because they didn't want to have a dud. And then they used the plutonium bomb, which was bigger and uh, you know iffier, and it worked really well on uh, Nagasaki. And um, so when they had those bombs, um, they first of all, used them to show the, the Russians what they had. They didn't really need the bombs to get Japan to surrender. So J Japan was toast at that point. It had no Navy, no Air Force. It was landlocked. Its, its biggest army was trapped in China with no way to get home and, and out of fuel and out of ammunition. Um, so they were they were toast and uh, and their cities were being systematically annihilated by not nuclear bombs, but by incendiary bombs. So they were about they were suing for surrender when these bombs were dropped. But the, the message was for the Russians, the Soviets. Uh, look what we can do and look what we're willing to do, you know, destroy cities. And and so then what happened and this was not known widely in the United States. Uh, for years, the U.S. immediately after dropping the bomb on Nagasaki set about trying to industrialize the production of these bombs, which were totally handmade and uh, and not easy to industrialize the production of. So um, they, they had to build huge refining facilities to uh, refine out the U-235 fissionable isotope of uranium. Uh, hand, which was done at uh, Oak Ridge uh, with this massive, mass, much more massive construction than anything at Los Alamos, just, just to do that. You know, that's what the Iranians are trying to do now. Uh, it, and they also were uh, building these plutonium bombs, which are uh, hard to make, but easy to get plutonium because it's a waste product of nuclear reactors. So, um, they, by 1946, the end of the year, they had nine atomic bombs that all handmade. And then they, you know, they started getting better at making them more efficiently. And, in, and you know, it's sort of a factory thing. Uh, so by uh, 1948, they had 150 bombs. And you know, you have to start asking, okay, nobody else has the bomb. And all the experts are saying the Russians won't have one for an, uh, for 10 years, right? So you got to say, why are they building all these bombs, right? Nobody else has it. And, uh, and by um, the middle of 1949, they had 200. Well, later, we learned that uh, the Pentagon had been asked by Harry Truman, how many bombs would it take to uh, destroy the Soviet Union as an industrial power? And the Pentagon said, 400. And you need to have the planes to carry them. So, the, so Truman set about, you know, funding this massive project to create the 400 bombs or more. And they restarted the assembly line on the B-29 bomber. That was the Enola Gay, right? That was the only bomber that could carry these, uh, these uh, especially the plutonium bomb, which weighed five tons. Um, and that's a huge bomb for those days. And uh, it couldn't carry two. And it, 
And it was the only bomber that could carry the, that bomb any distance. And the Soviet Union is a big country, and they had moved most of their uh, uh, industrial uh, senator, sector into the other side of the Urals, right, in the center, because they had to get away from the Nazis who were moving in. And so uh, to destroy Russia as an industrial power, you needed to have a lot of very big planes with long ranges in order to drop the bombs on these industrial centers and, and cities in the heartland like Novosibirsk and stuff. So um, so that's what they were doing. They were cranking out these B-29s and restoring the ones that had been used in World War II, which were pretty beat up. Uh, and you got to ask, why were they doing this if it wasn't to bomb the Soviet Union? And in fact, they were developing these uh, plans uh, for how they would do it. And the, the first plan, they had weird names like Pincher and Broiler and Sizzler. And I mean, horrible names, you know, and they and they were calling for dropping like eight bombs on Moscow, uh, like Nagasaki, eight bombs like Moscow on Leningrad, uh, you know, four bombs on, on Rostock and all these different places. And um, it would have been uh, an unimaginable genocidal holocaust that to drop these 400 bombs if they had ever gotten to that point. But what happened was when they only had 200 at the middle of 1949, in August 29th, the Russians exploded their bomb and Truman called it off because they couldn't at that point assure that there wouldn't be some nuclear retaliation. In other words, uh, the Soviets, you know, getting their hands on the bomb essentially meant that they had a deterrent um, that would prevent, you know, a nuclear conflict. Yeah. I mean, even if they didn't use it on, uh, you know, New York, they could have used it on a, a, they could have smuggled it in on a train or something and blown up a, a U.S. base in, in Germany or something. They, they, they could have done some kind of, you know, they could have blown up Berlin and, and uh, so they, they would have been able to retaliate somehow. So, uh, it it kind of put a damper on the plans to go after Russia and destroy it. Uh, and so the and the other, you know, the other thing you have to factor in here is the other thing the US did was immediately after the Japan surrendered, they started working on the hydrogen bomb, which was uh Teller's idea. And uh and the only way you can explode a hydrogen bomb is with an atomic bomb. You know, like you need a fission bomb first. If the Russians didn't get a fission bomb, even though they had the brains uh, like Sakharov to figure out how to build a hydrogen bomb, they wouldn't have been able to set it off for 10 years if they hadn't gotten the plutonium bomb when they did. So it was all key to uh, keeping... Uh, the U.S. from having that monopoly. And the other thing I would say to young people... And, and is, there were a lot of scientists that were worried about that mono monopoly as well. Absolutely. The, you know, what... what uh, and, and, and Ted Hall, we asked him about this, and he actually... Uh, we didn't ask him. We, we, uh, he's, he died in 1999. But his lawyer, fortunately for us, when we are making this film, uh, his lawyer had suggested to him in England, uh, Ted, 
you know, he had been exposed in 1995, by the way, by the release of the Venona cables that had been kept secret and decrypted of Soviet wartime spying. Uh, and they exposed Ted as a spy. So everybody knew it. at that point he was a spy. And you know, it was in the Washington Post and it became a big deal. And he was over in Cambridge and it became like a media scrum outside his house. And, and meanwhile, he was dying of kidney cancer, probably contracted from the work he was doing at Los Alamos. So before he died, his lawyer said, Ted, you need to uh, get on tape, videotape, and explain what you did and why you did it for the historical record. And I will uh, keep it in my safe in my office until after you and your wife, Joan, are dead and not susceptible to prosecution. Uh, and so you should, for this historical record, you should explain it all. And he did. And we got that tape because his, his widow, and part of the story is when I, let me back up, when I, when I did that story, uh, I, I thought I was going to get hate mail only from, you know, anti-communists. And instead, I get an email that said, Dear Dave, I'm reading your article in Counterpunch about Ted Hall uh, with tears in my eyes. I'm Ted's widow, and you're the first journalist who's, who got him, you know. And so I emailed her and I said, thanks for writing me, Joan. You know, I really like to talk with you. And she said, yes, you know, we have to, yeah, we have a lot to talk about. Um, and we became pen pals, you know, email pen pals. And I finally got over there with uh, my wife uh, a year later and talked with her and uh, for two days and thought, you know, there should be a book about this because nobody knows about the history of the uh, efforts to destroy the Soviet Union and put that together with what Ted did, where he really saved the Soviet Union and the world. And what I would say to young people is the reason you can say that it saved the world is if you look at the history of the United States since World War II, it has been one uh, genocidal uh, war after another started by the US uh, or turned into a major conflict by the US uh, that has involved the killing of millions of people, uh, fortunately not by nuclear weapons, but look, in the Korean War, three million people were killed mostly by carpet bombing by the United States. They were bombing North, North Korea uh, round the clock from uh, large bombers flying from Japan uh, for a year or more. And it got to the point where the bombers were returning to base, dropping all their bombs in the uh, Sea of Japan before they landed, because it's a risky landing with a whole plane load of bombs. And the reason they were doing that is there were no more targets for them to hit. They killed 3 million people, mostly civilians. And, um, and then there's Vietnam, another 3 million uh, Indo-Chinese, mostly civilians. And the rest were liberation fighters fighting for independence uh, from an invading country, us. Um, they almost used nuclear weapons at Tian Bien Phu to set, rescue the French in 1954. They almost used nuclear weapons. They actually 
sent them over on a ship uh, to rescue the Marines trapped at Quezon. Um, they uh, almost used nuclear weapons in the Cuban Missile Crisis. There were multiple times the U.S. almost used the bomb and didn't. And the reason they didn't every single time was somebody with the saner head uh, said uh, in the councils of government, um, wait a minute, the Russians have the bomb. If we use it, they're going to use it. And that is, that's simply the case. So the, the slaughter that the U.S. would have done would have been vastly greater. I think we can say that absolutely without any question, had the U.S. Uh, had a free hand to use nuclear weapons. And one of the things they would have done was to prevent the Soviet Union from getting the bomb. And we know they were planning to do that. Now, I know this is uh, somewhat speculative, but I'm assuming that we can sort of gather from what you're saying that this is why uh, Ted Hall gave this information uh, to the Soviets. And I, I just want to get into who Ted Hall was for listeners that may be unfamiliar, yeah. because Klaus Fuchs is more well known. Uh, there, there's a lot less uh, on um, on Ted Hall for some reason. Well, Ted is more. I think there's a couple of things. First of all, nobody really knows uh, or knew. Uh, uh, there's one book that was written about Ted Hall called Bombshell. It's a great book. It was written by uh, a husband and wife team who were uh, uh, correspondents for Cox News in Moscow when the news about Ted being a spy came out in 95. And they raced over there and got him to talk to them. And the books came out in 97. It's called Bombshell. And um, uh, it, it's Joe Albright and Marsha Kunstall are the the authors. It's a great book. It's out of print. Uh, didn't get a lot of sales. And it did make the, the case that Ted of why he did this and what he did, uh, because he told them, uh, thinking that he would die before the book came out. Um, and uh, so at any rate, uh, the, the, the point that Ted made was that uh, he felt in uh, in the fall of 1944, that he was hearing talk that, for instance, Leslie Groves, the general in charge of the uh, Manhattan Project, saying at a, at a dinner, well, you know, the bomb is not, people were saying, well, Germany's losing the war, they're not gonna get a bomb. And that's what they were thought they had to get the bomb for. Einstein said, the Germans are gonna get this bomb, we need to get it first. and. Uh, by then, it was obvious German was, Germany was losing the war. The country was being bombed to smithereens by then. Uh, the, the Luftwaffe was being uh, destroyed. So the bombers were getting freer and freer hand coming into Germany. And um, so Ted said, you know, hearing this kind of talk and seeing what was happening in Germany, a lot of the, the scientists are saying, you know, we don't need to use the bomb anymore. We, let's just stop the project. Let, let's, uh, you know, and then let's negotiate a ban on the bomb. Um, 40, um, 40 scientists led by Leo Szilard uh, signed a uh, letter to Truman saying, um, don't use the bomb on Japan. It's not a nuclear country. It'll set a terrible precedent. We'll look terrible uh, as a nation. Um, and for 40 of the scientists signed it. Uh, um, the uh, Niels Bohr, who was the top big name in the project, 
kind of the godfather of the project, uh, went to Roosevelt before Roosevelt died and said, you know, we've we've got to let the Russians in on this because they're our allies and we're making the bomb in secret from them. And uh, Roosevelt's response was to, to tell the FBI to tail him and make sure he didn't leave the country because they're afraid he would go tell the, the Russians about it. Um, so Ted, what, among all these scientists who wanted to do something to stop the bomb and to, or, and, or to bring the Russians in on it and then have a conference and get rid of the bomb, um, Ted, uh, took it on his own initiative as a 19-year-old uh, in uh, October, mid-October, to go find a Russian agent and tell them about it and tell them the plans for it because he and his roommate from Harvard, uh, Saville Sachs, uh, in discussions concluded that only by giving it to another country that would oppose the United States use of the bomb, would they be able to stop the US after the war from using the bomb, you know, willy nilly to control the world, which they saw as a, as a horrific possibility. And, and the thing of, that, that's interesting that makes Ted different from Klaus Fuchs is Klaus Fuchs was a committed Stalinist communist, you know, who had absolutely confidence that the world was being saved by communism and absolute faith in Stalin as a good guy and everything. And, and so rightly or wrongly, I mean, I think he thought he was acting out of nobility and, uh, you know, had the right idea. But, um, you know, what Ted said was that uh, he wasn't a communist at that point. Um, and at the time he did his spying or before then, when he was like a young high school kid or, you know, he started college at 14 at Queens College. You know, he, he wasn't a communist when he was 14. So, um, or at 16 at Harvard. Uh, when he, he simply said that he felt very strongly that the United States was not uh, suitable for having a bomb on its own, unrestrained by any other and so he decided he had to do something about it and and acting. He said in his taped uh, statement, if I had known what and believed what was being said about uh, Soviet Union under Stalin, I might not have had the stomach to do what I did. But looking back on it, I still think that the the young man I was in 1944 and 45 had the right solution. So he said, I have no regrets about what I did, but I don't think I would have done it had I known about Stalin's crimes. So that's an, it's a very nuanced and interesting perspective, but I think I think I understand it. Um, and, he, and I think he was right to do it. And I think he saved the world from incredible Holocaust uh, at the hands of the U.S. military. And um, he did become a communist briefly in uh, 1948, uh, but he and his wife joined and then, uh, and the Progressive Party too, and then uh, quit the Communist Party shortly after, like less than a year, because they were, uh, they were frustrated with the uh, top-down instructions they were getting and thought it was ridiculous and just decided not to have any more to do with it. So 
what's really interesting is that uh, Ted Hall does this, and that there are some high stakes involved. Oh, yeah, this was the Rosenbergs getting it. I was going to say, uh, you had the uh, Rosenbergs case, you had uh, Hoover, who was a rabid anti-communist at the FBI. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So what one of the things I I got, which was really amazing, is uh, I got a uh, FBI file on. I had to appeal to get it, but I got an FBI file on Ted's brother, who was 11 years older than him. And this is just an amazing story that nobody knows that um, Ted had this older brother who was probably as brilliant as Ted was. And, and Ted was so brilliant that people at the Manhattan Project remarked on how brilliant he was. And these are the, the, the biggest brains in physics were at Los Alamos and they were commenting, this kid was really brilliant, right? Now, I mean, that tells you how smart he was. I think his brother was probably just as smart. His brother uh, went into engineering at, at City University and then, uh, went into the army in 1939, and um, he uh, ended up in England in the Army Air Corps uh, on an assignment to repair bombers that were coming back all blown up part, you know, their fuselage is all torn up from shrapnel and stuff, and they're structurally damaged, and he would re figure out ways to repair them, get them back in the air and back into the bombing runs. And that's what he did during the war. After the war, he was a, uh, I, I learned that he was a uh, uh, advisor to special forces working for the OSS going into the Eastern zone of Germany that was uh, assigned to the Soviets for occupation and uh, going to Pienemund and stuff and finding the factory, underground factories and directing the destruction of uh, equipment used to make the rocket motors and things, and also uh, interviewing scientists to see who needed to be smuggled into the U.S. Uh, yeah, to... th this ties into um, Operation Overcast, which then becomes Paperclip, right? Yeah, that's right. So, so he did that, and he was a. By then, he was a major. He'd won some awards for his daring do, and uh, and then he got uh, made a co-director of a top secret. Uh, engine lab at Wright Patterson Air Base in Ohio, uh, designing missile motors to carry to, for missiles that would carry nuclear weapons. Right. So here you have Ted, who's uh, built the bomb and then turned against it and uh, gave it to the Russians. And then you have the guy, this guy who, by 1954, had been made the director of the ICBM development program for the US and invented the Minuteman missile, who's his brother, right? So Hoover found this out, obviously, very quickly. When, um, what I got in, when I got Ed's file was a letter uh, at the start of the file is a letter dated uh, January 6th, 1951, in which uh, Hoover writes to the head of the Office of Special Investigations at the Air Force, a guy named General Lewis uh, Joseph Carroll, right? Who, when I looked him up, he was like Hoover's top aide for a number of years and in his office and had been recommended by Hoover to head up the new OSI at the new US Air Force. Um, and so he writes, Dear General Carroll, 
you know, I'm writing to inform you that um, your major, uh, your major uh, Edward Hall is the older brother of a known uh, Soviet atomic spy, Theodore Alvin Hall. And we would like to have permission to interrogate Ed about his brother. And, and at this time, Ted Hall is getting interrogated himself, but he's- No, not quite, not quite. Okay, I, because I, I thought at one point, Ted Hall was being asked questions by the feds and then they were yeah, was saying, yeah. no, no, I'm not gonna answer these questions or yeah, I'm was, not involved in spying. That was two months later. Okay. So, so he notifies, uh, the, he notifies uh, General Carroll that his missile guy at Wright-Patterson is the brother of a known spy. And Hoover, you can tell, I mean, he, he found out about Ted right around the beginning of 1950 from the uh, signal uh, intelligence service, which was the precursor to the NSA. They, they had finally translated everything and had the goods on Ted. And so they notified the FBI and the FBI did an all points bulletin to try to locate Ted because he had left Los Alamos at the end of 45. And they found him doing graduate work in physics at uh, University of Chicago. So they set the uh, Chicago Bureau on to him and of course, they quickly found in their all points uh, investigation of Ted that his brother was in the Air Force and that he was at Wright-Patterson and that he was working on this top secret missile project. So you can imagine Hoover just thought, oh, this is better than the Rosenbergs. This is going to be, imagine the, you know, if this had gotten out. So uh, so then, you, then there's a, another letter that's dated March, 27th from Hoover. Now, at that point, at March 16th, he had interviewed, uh, he had had the, the, his agents call Hall in and Sachs at the same time, but not uh, knowing that each one was in the building and interrogated Sachs for two hours and Ted for three hours um, about the spying. And they both denied everything, you know. Um, but uh, at, and then two days later, Ted went back because they asked him to, to, he said he had to leave. And they said, can you come back Monday? And he said, yeah, I'll come back Monday. And on Monday, he came in, which was the 20th uh, of March. He, he came back and he said, uh, you know, I talked with my wife and uh, I know what you're doing. You're not asking, you're asking leading questions. You're trying to set me up. He said, I'm, I, I, don't want to cooperate anymore. I don't want to answer any more questions. And he got up and they started yelling and we can lock you up, you know, don't leave this room. And he just walked out and he left. And uh, that was the last time he was interrogated because, uh, and this is what I found out through getting the file, uh, the, 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 the March 27th letter to General, General uh, Carroll says, uh, without a nice salutation this time, he says, uh, in reference to my letter of January, January 6th, uh, I uh, got a response from you on January 18th, in which you said that you would be investigating uh, in, in, uh, the loyalty of Major Hall. Um, and then he says, we have uh, our, our investigation of Ted Hall has advanced to the point that it would be 
urgently uh, useful for us to uh, question uh, Major Hall about his brother. And uh, we would like permission to do that. So um, General Carroll does not respond urgently, but on June 12th, three months later, um, there is an interview of Ed Hall by the Cincinnati FBI Bureau. So he, so he did get permission to do it, but it stipulated that he could only ask Ed about Ted. He couldn't ask him about himself. The Navy didn't, the Air Force did not want any investigating by the FBI of Ed, who they had decided was an okay guy. And so um, that investigation went nowhere. And because uh, Ed denied knowing anything about his brother's spying, which probably was true. Um, and um, although he never condemned him for it, and um, he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel three weeks after that interview by the Air Force. So obviously that, that was a thumb in the eye to Hoover. Yeah, it, it sounds like Carol really liked Ed Hall and maybe was like thumbing a little bit. At, uh, and trusted yeah. him, right? And and so he he basically called off Hoover. And and in and what I found also in that file was uh, in let's see, was that file? Yeah, in the Ed Hall file was a note saying that um, from Hoover to all to the Chicago Bureau saying um, to remove Ted and Savvy Sachs from the special uh, security file of the FBI. And that's the one I asked Colleen Rowley, what does that mean? And she told me that uh, that meant that they were no longer going to do 24 hour surveillance of his house and his work and uh, Sachs's house and his work. They were no longer going to be tapping his phone or doing a mail cover. They were dropping all of that. So obviously. And, and Colleen Rowley would know, we should note uh, for my listeners, a uh, very uh, significant FBI agent that uh, ended up blowing the whistle on some stuff. Uh, with regards to 9-11. Yeah, and she didn't work under Hoover, but she came shortly after he died and uh, you know knew a lot of people well who had worked under him. So she knew how he worked. Um, so basically what you had is that the Air Force realized in the 1950s uh, that, um, that if, Ed Hall had been that if Ted Hall had been arrested and exposed in a criminal prosecution as a Soviet spy at Los Alamos, the newspapers would have instantly found Ed running the ICBM development program and would have you know, would have been moonshot landing headlines, you know, brother of Soviet spy leading U.S. ICBM development, and he would have been gone. From at a minimum, he would have lost his job and his security clearance, and and uh, you know probably been prosecuted on some trumped up charges as a spy. But um, instead, nobody heard anything more about Ted. No, he wasn't ever arrested. The story just died until 1995 when he was exposed. So the brothers' uh, position saved Ted from prosecution. It's just, it's an amazing story. 
that I mean, Hoover must have been so angry. <laughs> so before we uh, close this conversation out, uh, there was one really interesting little tidbit uh, from your article in The Nation uh, in which you talk about uh, Ted's widow, Joan Hall, uh, now 92 and uh, still living in the family home in Newnham, Cambridge. England, just outside of Cambridge. Uh, but uh, she recalled an incident that she'd forgotten uh, to mention in one of your prior conversations with her. And oh, the, uh, it involved- the, the What was that? The visit of the, of the brother. Yes, yeah, sure. I wanted to talk about Ed uh, driving all the way from Ohio to, uh, to, to come to uh, Ted's home and, and Joan's home. Yeah, they were living in Chicago, obviously, in a, you know, a rented house. And uh, so on the day after Ted was uh, interrogated by the FBI, um, the next morning, he gets, they get a knock on the door. And the first knock is from a uh, guy who says he's from the phone company. And uh, the, the, he has a report that, to fix their phone. And Joan said they hadn't made a report to have any problem with their phone. So uh, he said, well, I don't know. I got an order here to fix it. So he comes in and he tinkers around with the phone and stuff. And then he leaves. And they both figured, OK, well, because they had just been through this uh, interrogation Ted had. So they figured, OK, so now our phone is tapped. And then they get another knock on the door. And they open the door and there's Ed, right? Uh, and so uh, he comes in uh, totally unannounced and um, he walks over to the phone first thing and he just picks it up and he listens to it, blows in it, you know, listens to it. And then he puts it down and he says, you know, and signals outside, let's go outside. So they go outside and he says, your phone's tapped. And they said, we figured it was. A guy came today and, you know, tinkered with it. And uh, so obviously the reason he drove there was because he couldn't call them. Because after he'd been, he, he had obviously been questioned by the, um, he didn't, he hadn't been questioned by the FBI yet, but he'd been questioned by the um and the agents for the osi at the air force right so he knew that they were investigating ted so he comes in and i, I like that line that you mentioned in the article too okay what what kind of trouble have you oh, done yeah, to yeah, yourself now he ted he says so when they get outside he turns to his brother and he says okay ted what kind of trouble have you gotten into now you know and um uh, and actually, that was a reference to something that happened in, in during the war. He had married a British woman and she had written to Ted, who was under, you know, at Los Alamos. They had uh, all their mail was being opened and checked in, incoming and outgoing uh, at Los Alamos. So uh, she wrote him and she said, um, I don't know what you're working on out there. Uh, this is She didn't even know him. I mean, she just was married to his brother in England. They'd never met. She said, I don't know what you're doing out there in Los Alamos, but uh, if it has anything to do with explosions, send us a big one for Guy Fawkes Day, right? And, you know, when the, when the uh, monitors reading that, the military monitors who are surveilling the mail uh, saw that, they called Ted in and they said, what have you told your sister-in-law, you know? And they called in Ed 
in England and said, what's what what did you hear from Ted, you know, your brother about Los Alamos? And Ed says nothing. And uh, it turned out that she was just joking around about Guy Fawkes Day and she had no idea what he was doing. And they they eventually managed to explain everything. And so both of them were fine. But but that's what he was referring to, because it was a big blow up for for Ed in England and, and for Ted at Los Alamos. So he was saying, OK, what what kind of trouble did you get in this time? And um, so obviously Ted told him at that point, I'm sure they they walked off. Uh, Joan said they went they took, went for a walk, the two brothers. And then yeah, came, they, they now, only returned like an hour later, but they must have had yeah, a long yeah, talk. They, yeah. And then and then he got uh, back on uh, in his car and drove back to the base um, to, you know, obviously, I, I'm sorry, it was a. It would have been the 16th, 17th, 18th night. It would have been the 19th when he went back to the for his interview on the Monday. But this was a Saturday that uh, Ed took the day off and came uh, to to see Ted and to warn him and find out what what was going on when Ted when Ed was actually interviewed on June 12th and they said when did you last see your brother he lied and said uh you know I don't I haven't really seen him much since uh before the war because I was based... yeah we're, we're not even that close anymore you know that type of thing yeah, yeah you said we're not even we're not we used to be close when we were growing up but we haven't we, we've lost touch and aren't really that close and he said the last time he'd seen him was a year before. Uh, and so he didn't mention that visit only two weeks before or, or three months before to uh, their house, which was l lucky that um, they hadn't set up surveillance of Ted's house yet because uh, they would have seen him come in. But but apparently that never got noticed so that he got away with with that lie. So then it's interesting, too, in the article, you mentioned uh, that at Ted Hall's Cambridge Remembrance Service, a, a fellow physicist, Mick Brown, called him a living example of selfless courage and a hero to the present young generation of science yeah. students. And you, you actually note in the article, you say that may seem an odd way to describe someone who, uh, whatever his reasons, abetted nuclear proliferation. So if I have listeners that are saying, well, he, he was spying uh for the soviets he was he was being treacherous what do you say to those people that have that sort of knee-jerk reaction well um you know ted said ted was asked that question in an interview that we included uh before he died he was interviewed by a, a reporter for the bbc and we got the the full rushes of that uh, uh interview and he asked ted he said well uh you know how do you feel about the fact that you you know you were breaking the law when you uh, you know gave secrets to the Russians and Ted said well you know I said I we're we're brought up to to believe in right and wrong and not to do the wrong thing and to do the right thing you know and he said but sometimes things are gray and you know not so easy to decide what's right and wrong and, and he said he felt that uh, the the you know the the pressing concerns about humanity overrode patriotism and he also said i believed that the uh the, the bomb that was developed was developed by a bunch of reluctant humanists 
uh, who came together to build it because we thought that uh, this horrible organization, the Nazis, were going to get the bomb. But he said, uh, we were the ones that made it. We were the ones that owned it. We were the ones that were responsible for it. And so, you know, he didn't feel like this was something that the U.S. owned. This was something that he, he, had, he had made, right? So he, he, he was responsible for testing the implosion device and getting it to work. And so he felt ownership. And, and you know, think about that. If you had that on your conscience and you saw that it was probably going to be used, uh, and, and he was right, because then it was used on Japan, on two non-military cities slaughtering, uh, you know, over 200,000 innocent civilians, children, women, old people, even U.S. prisoners of war, you know, were slaughtered by this bomb, these two bombs. I mean, he he was right. He guessed right that the U.S. would do that horrible stuff with the bomb, and he didn't want to see it happen. So he took a step that was technically treasonous, but uh, in the larger worldview was heroic. So then last question here. We talked about uh, Ed and Ted Hall, uh, and I believe, you know, you've done work on this. How does Joan sort of figure into the bigger picture, Ted's wife? And, and what can we say about her and, and her significance uh, to the life of Ted Hall and to the story you've worked on? Well, she's an amazing woman. I mean, he, she was younger than him. She was 18 when they got together and he was like 21 or two uh, when they fell in love at the University of Chicago. She was an undergrad and uh, he, there's this wonderful scene and it's in the movie. We have reenactment scenes in the movie done uh, by the same producer who did the reenactments for 1971, you know, about the, um, the raid on the media FBI office. Uh, she's really good. And, and so we have this scene, but, but basically Ted told jo Joan, uh, you know, after they uh, were uh, done with their uh, lovemaking, he got very serious and he rolled over and looked at her and he said, uh, Joan, I love you and I want to marry you. And she said, oh, I was hoping you would ask me, you know, and uh, and then he says and then he gets very serious and she says and somber and she says, what's the matter? And he said, well, there's something I have to tell you. That's what I wanted the, the name of the movie to be. There's something I have to tell you. Uh, and um, but that didn't fly. So so anyway, uh, um, he says, well, you know, the bomb I was working on at Los Alamos uh, is very secret. And uh, she said, so you're going to give it to the Russians like she just <laughs> figured that out. And he said, I did. Yes. And she said, why? How's that going to help? And he says, well, you know, if the U.S. has a monopoly on the bomb and, and the wrong government comes into power, it could be used in terrible ways. And, and I, it, I felt like somebody has to be uh, there to stop it. And so I felt like, you know, it had to give it to the Russians. So he explained it to her and she he said, I just wanted to tell you in case you want to drop out, you know, 
And she said, I didn't want to drop out. You know, I, this, I loved this guy and, uh, you know, and I supported what he did. And so, you know, that's basically it. But she's a heroic woman and she, she stuck with him through all of this. Um, and she probably saved his life a couple times because, uh, you know, she helped him clear their house out of stuff and drop it into the Chicago drainage canal. Uh, so that if their house was checked, there, there wouldn't be incriminating documents. And she, uh, uh, that was when they had a two-year-old daughter. And uh, she, then uh, when they were in England, uh, after Ed had left his missile work, the FBI started investigating again, because they didn't have to worry about Ed. And so they, um, the first thing that Hoover did was he contacted MI5 in England and asked them to please go interrogate Ted and try to get him to confess. Because that's what they did with Fuchs. They got him to confess. They played on his sense of guilt and stuff. And so they went to Ted and they said, look, we're not the FBI. Why don't you just come clean and tell us it's been a long time. Just you know, tell us what you did. And he said, well, let me talk to my wife. And so he went and talked to Joan. They went for a walk and he told them and he said, you know, I really don't like living a lie. And and maybe they're right. Maybe I'll feel better if I just, you know, I won't be I, I'll be able to, you know, be myself. I'll be able to pursue the big quantum questions instead of hiding in uh, biophysics and, uh, you know, do what I really want to do. And she said. Don't you dare. You will tell them nothing. This is a trap. They're going to come after you. The FBI is going to come after you. And, you know, you don't say anything. And he said, you think? And, and she said, yes. And so she stopped him and probably saved his life right there. Because this was 1966. And then uh, she also stopped him another time uh, I'm trying to remember oh the rosenbergs um i don't know do we have time there's a scene in the movie uh and 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 it's also told in the book bombshell this is an amazing coincidence ted was working at sloan kettering doing bio bioengineering work and electromicroscopy and uh and um it was 1953, his boss had a party that he called uh, on a Friday night. And um, so they were invited to the party and uh, it was up in upstate New York. So they're driving up there and the, there wasn't a New York throughway then. So they're driving up the road through Terrytown and stuff along the Hudson River. And they didn't want to go because it was the night that the Rosenbergs were being executed. They were going to be, they had to be executed before sunset because of respect for Judaism or, uh, or after, yeah, sunset, at sunset. And uh, so uh, in respect for their uh, Jewish religion, right? And uh, so he, um, as he's driving along, and they're feeling morose about this. He he sees the sign for Sing Sing where they were executed, and they didn't even realize they were driving by Sing Sing. But right right then, they realize, oh my God, it's sunset. We're driving 
past Sing Sing, they're being executed right now. And he turns on the radio. I think he turned the radio on before this. And it's playing Mahler's fifth uh, piano concerto, uh, which the last movement, which is called the departure. Probably somebody on the on the radio station was doing it on purpose because he knew that they were executing the Rosenbergs and a lot of people, liberals, uh, were upset about the execution. And so this morose music is playing and they drive by Sing Sing and they realize, wow, it's going on right now. So they were like really, really upset. Uh, Ted had, Jones said that Ted, before the execution, was so upset that he said to Joan, you know, I've done something far more serious than anything the Rosenbergs did, which is true. They didn't even give any nuclear secrets. They gave stuff like proximity fuse stuff to the Russians, but nothing to do with nuclear stuff. And we now know even that they did that the thing that they were accused of doing through Harry Gold was also not uh, true. It was it was made up by the prosecutors. So actually, there were no nuclear secrets given by the Rosenbergs. But Ted said, whatever they did, it wasn't anything like what I did, you know. So I and I'm getting away, scot free. Um, it's not right. He said, I, I should call the Justice Department and offer to confess if they uh, don't execute, if they drop the execution of the Rosenbergs. And Joan said, don't you dare. She said, all you'll do is end up getting yourself killed. You're, you know, who knows what happens to me, but you'll destroy my life and your daughter's life. Uh, you'll make her an orphan uh, like the Rosenberg kids and you won't save them. And so he didn't do it. And so she saved him there too. And by the way, uh, I checked that with uh, Michael Mirpol, who, who coincidentally lived a few blocks from them while he was a grad student at Cambridge, but didn't know it because it was before they were exposed. And after it happened, he raced over there to see them and they became really good friends, including Ed, you know, I mean, including Ted. But I, you know, I talked with Mirapol and he said, he said, Joan was right. You know, if they had tried to save my parents, it wouldn't have saved my parents and it would have killed Ted. So um, I, I actually became friends with Michael. I, I, I've communicated with him a lot since then. Um, he's very, he's very uh, supportive of the film. We didn't use him in the film because it really wasn't necessary, but um, he offered to be in the film if we wanted him. So I, I was going to say, in closing, you know, it's great that there's being a, a documentary made about this with reenactments because uh, th this is perfect fodder for... Uh, like a Hollywood movie, there's there's a spy story to it, but there's also a love story to it. it it's uh, it's perfect. Yeah. Well, we hope that someone will make a um, make a drama out of it because we, you know, we got releases uh, from you know Joan and her daughters and stuff for doing a drama too. So, um, you know, we would that would be fantastic because <laughs> then it would get a bigger audience than a documentary. What I love about it is that it's it's a really engaging story. And I guess, you know, there's a lot of this tension and, and suspense uh, to this very true story. But there's also a, a very human 
uh, relational social element to it between uh, Ted, Ed, and and Joan. So th there's well, that, a you know, that's why when I just just so you you get the full story when I was I, I was at Joan's place I said you know there ought to be a book on this. And because the first book was written before the FBI files were available on Ted and Savvy, and also it was written before we knew about the U.S. plans to destroy the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons. So uh, there really should be another book done, and I would like to do that. And she said, I don't want to do another book because uh, it was so horrible when the the when Ted came out uh, and was exposed. We had three weeks of a media scrum outside the house, and I just, I'm too old for that now. And uh, she said, but there there is a, uh, a film team that's working on trying to do a dramatization of Ted's life. And uh, so I said, oh, that's great. Okay, so good. And then later, uh, she called me a year later and she said, I'm so depressed. And I said, why? And she said, the film's been dropped. They can't raise the money due to the film, you know? And she said, I wish you could do a film. So I, I said, well, I could, I've done film. I've worked in television, you know, my son's a videographer, you know, we could do a low budget documentary. And she said, okay. So I started thinking about it and I thought, shit, I, I can't, I don't know how to get money to do this. I can't, like, I wouldn't know anything about distribution, but I had been in a film that Steve James did called Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, as a reporter articulating the importance of the story. And that, that said, was hey, about the uh, Chinese about bank. A bank. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a great movie. It's like it's a wonderful life in real life. You know, it's an amazing story. And, um, and so uh, I was intimately involved with watching that film get made. And uh, and I was just so impressed with Steve and his producer, Mark Minton. And uh, and so I thought, well, wait a minute, why don't I ask them if they're interested in doing this film? Because they could do a bang up job of this story because of the reasons you say it's it's a real it's a it's a love story. It's a, a thriller. It's uh, a family relationship. Uh, you know, with their daughters not knowing what Ted did until they were adults and all this stuff. So there's so much drama in it. Uh, and I thought, boy, Steve does that so well, you know, like uh, he did Hoop Dreams. He's, he's, he's really an amazing filmmaker, uh, documentarian. And so, uh, you know, I asked them and Steve said, well, it'll all depend on Joan because everybody else is dead. So unless she's like a really compelling character, I don't see how it would work but why don't i uh he, he first he talked with her on facetime and he said you know i said she's amazing she's charismatic she's articulate you know she talks well uh and so he talked with her on facetime facetime and he said well, she's really good and then he said i'll tell you what i'm going to do i'm going to front uh flying over with me and mark and uh my uh director of photography and uh, I'll hire a local sound and lighting guy. We'll go to Joan's house if she'll agree to it. And we'll spend three days filming her. And then I'll decide what we can do with it, you know? And so we did that. And I brought my son along and paid my way and his way. Uh, and, and he did second camera. And um, we did the three days. And a, a week later, Mark called me and, and said, uh, you know, Steve says, this is... Uh, 
going to be a documentary and whether it'll be a long one or a feature film will depend on getting the funding. But he thinks it could be a feature film. And so, and that's it. And then the participant agreed to fund it fully. So we were able even to fund the, the reenactments, which are expensive. And so it worked. Real quick, if I could, because this just popped into my head and I'm not, I'm not trying to keep you over time here, but uh, you know, what do we know about um, Ted and Joan's uh, daughter or, or daughters? Um, have they spoken about any of this? Oh yeah, that's amazing. I mean, they one daughter one daughter didn't find out because she was killed in a accident run over by a truck. I mean, a horrible story. Um, left two kids without a mother, and you know, just I think it was the worst tragedy of their whole life together, losing the 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 uh, middle daughter. But uh, but at any rate, uh, Ruthie who's my age, and Sarah, who was the younger daughter, uh, both told their stories about finding out from their father what happened. But the, the most emotional was, was Sarah, who's this really sweet person. And she, she said, you know, she always was a progressive, and she, but she always sort of thought that her parents were kind of hypocrites because she said they always would talk a good line about caring about you know, a better world and stuff, but they never did anything, you know, and, and they always, it was all talk and no action. They didn't go to demonstrations. They didn't do anything. And, uh, and she said, uh, then one day when I was 20, I, I and in college, I, I was listening to a, a BBC program about the Manhattan Project. And I listened to it. And it suddenly flashed on me, I'll bet my father would have been there. You know, and so she got she she left the show and she went to the payphone in the basement of the, her dorm and she called her father and she said, Ted, they called them their parents by their first name. She said, Ted, were you at the Manhattan Project? And there was a little silence. And then he said, yeah, he never told them he was at the Manhattan Project. And and uh, and she said, so were, did you help to make the bomb? And he said, yeah, I did, because we thought, you know, I, when I was hired, we thought the Germans were going to get the bomb. And and then she said, as she's telling the story, she said, and she said, I couldn't believe it. I said, my my God, it's him. He helped to make the worst thing that humanity has ever made. And she said, and then, of course, he told me that he took took steps to make sure that somebody else had it and it couldn't be used. And so, you know, she said, when I heard that, uh, all the pennies dropped, ching, 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 and it made it all made sense. And, and Ruthie looks at her, the older sister, and she said, so, so, so it made sense to you then? And she said, yes. And, and she's, and she said, and all that time, I, I thought that they hadn't done anything. And then she buried her head in her hands and started to cry. And um, so uh, she said, oh, I can't talk anymore. I don't want any of this on the tape. And Steve convinced her later, we need this, <laughs> you know, just, just to hear. And then cut, you know, not sob, sob, sob. But he, he, he cut it and cut it until she accepted it. It's very powerful. And uh, 
And Ruthie tells the story of how she's walking down the street with her father uh, and there's an anti, like a nuclear freeze march. And uh, she said, come on, dad, let's go join the march. And he said, no, I don't want to join the march. And she said, what's the matter? Join the march. Come on. And, you, you know, this is important. And he looked at it and he watched them going by for a minute. And then he said, oh, what the hell? Come on, let's go. And she said, it's the first time he ever did that. And, and you know, she thought, what is going on here? But, you know, so she she was told later and uh and hers was not, we didn't put it in the movie, but she told how when they decided to tell their oldest daughter, uh, they said they had to go to the train state, Cambridge train station at rush hour. So they're in the hall where everybody's going, you know, and there's all the mic, mics announcing the trains at the different tracks and stuff and all this noise. And they're telling her in the train station because they were afraid of, of you know, somebody overhearing it. So he did it in this crowd scene. It would have been a great, great film to have that, you know, like so it, a, it would have been too loud in the train station for them to get overheard. Yeah. yeah, but we could have done a reenactment, you know, but but we didn't think it was worth doing. I mean, just it, it wasn't as powerful as Sarah hearing it. And all these years, she thought her parents were hypocrites. And then she finds out her father did this like extraordinary thing to recover from what he had done, you know. The, contributing to the bomb it's a, it's an amazing story i mean just the whole thing but that'll be in the book you know like when i finally do a book but uh but right now it's the movie so well i'm so happy we got to speak about this story we went over an hour uh talking about it and i really want to thank you uh, Sorry for sharing no, I, I i i i was hoping it would go a little bit longer if you were open to it, and I think this is a great story that everyone needs to hear. Uh, how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Uh, I have a, a, a news site that I founded that's a collectively owned news site with six journalists on it called thiscantbehappening.net. And um, it doesn't make any money unless people donate, which they don't. But, you know, it's the sad story of... Uh, of uh, the internet, but uh, I write uh, for that a lot. And most of my articles that I write there get picked up by Counterpunch and a couple other places. Um, but you can go to that site, this can't be happening.net. And what I do is anything that I do anywhere else, like I, I have an important piece up in Salon right now. And what I do is I put a tease to the stories I do for money at other publications uh, on my site with a link to the full story on the paid site, like Salon, or The Nation is also linked on my site. Um, so you basically can see anything I wrote if you go to This Can't Be Happening. Not back to high school, but uh, you know, with, it, it was founded in 2010. So uh, you can go back and see any article I've done on that site. It's a searchable site and um, that, would get you to the nation article or get you to the salon article that I just did about Ukraine and such. Well, thank you again, Dave Lindorf. Well, thank you for having me. This is fantastic. You, you did a good interview and uh, I, I think I'll make a nice, nice uh, piece. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dave Lindorf. 
and be sure to check out his work at thiscantbehappening.net. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallaxes, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.